For me, I get my best photos when I go to a place and don't take photos right away. I just kind of soak it all in or go for a hike and get to know the place a little better. And uh, then you start, you open up your mind like, oh, and the light gets good. This is going to look cool. That's a good place to be creative, you know, just by being in the moment. Inspiration. Creative people. Problem solving. Imagination. Discovery. Thinking outside of the box. Welcome to Inspiris Audio Magazine, a podcast focusing on creativity, inspiration, and imagination. Hello, and welcome to Interest Audio Magazine. I'm your host, Spencer Webster. So what do you get when you throw farming and agriculture, music production, bicycling, photography, travel writing, and a decidedly lack of desire to live in the big city any longer into a mixing bowl? You get my next guest, a professional travel photographer, a cross-country bicyclist, and sound production engineer for rock bands. I'd like to introduce Chuck Haney to Inspire's Audio Magazine. Spencer! Yes. How are you? I'm doing great. So how have you been? Last time I saw you, we were in uh, Key West. Yeah, we were. I was thinking about that. Uh, I think we departed. You departed right before the deluge. Yes. Yeah. Well, we still got hammered. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> It was pretty rough. So I had to seek refuge in one of the uh, the local pubs before I could even get back myself. It was, I think the streets were flooded. Yeah, that seemed to happen quite a bit there. So, yeah. did you have a good time in the Key West area with your photography? Yeah, I've uh, been there, I don't know, probably like four times now. And yeah, you know, it's just got a vibe and something different. And, and yeah, I always come back with some new pictures. Some of my favorite ones actually that I have on my wall and the house here, there's a big 40 by 60 from Key West. Very, very nice. Yeah. Well, it was it was fun to spend an evening with you, and I look forward to doing some more of that. I've got a nice car now, so we want to dr- take a drive over there and visit with you guys once COVID's kind of left the area. So yeah, it's looking a little better. Yeah, a little bit better. So how how else have you been doing? You know, have you been doing any photography trips or anything since we saw you? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I mean, that was one thing I did during last year during COVID. I I couldn't really teach. I did uh, one class in the UP of Michigan in October, but you know, I just did a lot of uh, more solo trips, and I went to places that I normally don't go, like locally. There was a lot of people here for in the valley visiting for an, for another reason, but uh, yeah. So pretty much kind of normal schedule. I just went to Oregon for a week just to sharpen my chops and, you know, get some new images. And I'm leaving a week from tomorrow. I'll be gone. I'm only home five days in five weeks. So I got to back to normal, busy schedule. That's kind of the way it goes. You know what I mean? Like you got to hit things seasonally and hit them hard. And then in between you have, you have some free time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that you're busy. There, there's been so many people who have struggled with, you know, with different things. So it's nice to see that you're you're kind of picking back up again. I'm I'm also glad that you you probably kept yourself focused enough to be able to 
kind of work through this last year and a half, basically? Yeah, it was a little scary at first. I was still able to, people were still buying photos, which was good. And, uh, you know, it didn't, like I said, it didn't stop me from producing new images as well. And I was able to keep afloat and things look are looking good again, you know, so I'm encouraged by that. I'm happy to hear that. So can you give me what I'm calling your one minute elevator autobiography? You know, can you tell me who Chuck Haney is in a minute or so? <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, in one minute. Yeah. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a self-made photographer, writer, adventurer, I've been living in the Montana for 32 years now. Grew up in a farm in Ohio and had a, yeah, it's it's almost like Forrest Gump. I've had an interesting, interesting uh, journey in life. Uh, lots of ups and downs and, uh, but mostly ups and uh, it's been a real satisfying career and uh, lifestyle and uh, I'm in a good place presently. And uh, I just turned 60. So just trying to figure out what I'm going to, how the next, you know, 10 years of life are going to go. Yeah. I think you really kind of reduce life to five or 10 year segments. It seems like, especially when you look back and think what you did over that time or so, uh, yeah, it, it's exciting. I think things always are going to be a little different and, uh, yeah. I this wasn't a planned question, but w- for you, what's the difference between Ohio and Montana? I like both states for different reasons. Both good places, obviously. You know, growing up on a farm there, you know, uh, it was a good place to grow up. I had a lot of good friends, a lot of farmer friends, rural friends, and that was a great place. Montana uh, is obviously more exciting as far as visually and adventure-wise, a lot more open, and people here have always been super friendly. I feel like I'm more Montana than Ohio, and I've lived here longer than I lived in Ohio. Yeah, it's 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 quite a difference, I mean, culturally as well, but, you know, there's a lot of similarities too, I mean, as far as people go. Yeah, Montana is definitely was the right place for me to end up. That's really cool. I, I do like that state a lot. And it's so beautiful. I can understand why photography is, has uh, come to your your focus there, no pun intended. So Yeah. And I mean, when I moved here, that really wasn't part of the plan. I was a bicycle mechanic and I, I just finished riding my bicycle across the country. And uh, one of the places I rode through was Whitefish. I'd been there before too, just to check it out. But I think when I came through um, on my bicycle trip, I kind of knew this is where I wanted to live. And, you know, Whitefish in 1989 was much different than it is today. When I got back from the bicycle trip, I didn't have a job. (laughs) So I went back to school and I went to school in uh, Oregon to learn bike mechanics. And when I got out, they had job placement and I had three job offers. And lo and behold, one of them was Whitefish, who could have, it couldn't have been scripted any better. And I mean, literally, I was here like a month later. That's really cool. So what was your trip like across the United States on a bicycle? Great adventure. There was another guy 
I grew up as, as a cyclist. Uh, most of my friends and actually the guy who became my stepfather was the president of the bicycle club. So when we were like 13 to 16, we did a lot of these 100-mile rides. And so there was this whole community of bicycle riders. And then when I was in my 20s, there was a guy who worked at GM. We were The town I grew up in was also a, a big GM plant was there. And he worked there, but he he gave it all up, quit, and rode his bicycle across the country. And I went to his slideshow, and I was so inspired by his storytelling and his photography. After this brief break, you'll laugh at another unforeseen interruption. If you have ideas about people I should connect with for inspiring conversations about creativity, please get in touch with me through my contact page at inspirus-podcast.com. And now back to the show. And just the whole adventure of it all. Um, you're not going to believe this, but that's my cat. <laughs> so <laughs> he, he knows how to ring the doorbell. But he's going to keep ringing. Sorry about that. Normally you're supposed to keep tabs on the cat. <laughs> that's it. I don't think I've had a have it, had an intrusion by a cat before. That's pretty no, good. I, don't, I doubt it. Yeah, he's he's trained now. <laughs> uh, where was I? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I went to his show, and, um, yeah, I was so inspired to go do it myself. And I already had a camera from my early 20s. And, I, you know, I was film days. I was played played around with it a little bit. But doing the bicycle trip, I started in Anacortes, and I ended up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, I think is where I finally finished. And yeah, I mean, man, what a, what a great adventure. I mean, it was like a trip of a lifetime. Started off with my sister. She went a few days with me. And, you know, just to, to see the the country at 10 to 12 miles an hour was quite an experience. I documented it with slides. And when I got back, I was able to do a slideshow. And I actually wrote to Adventure Cyclist Magazine, which I think at the time was still called Bike Centennial out of Missoula. And they liked what I wrote. And uh, that kind of started me thinking I could incorporate the writing in with my cycling and photography. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you go across the northern part of the, the country or did you dip down into the south or how was your route? Uh, it's, it's called, the, the, they have different routes, this adventure cycling organization. And so you purchase a set of maps. So I, I did the one which was called the northern tier. So I stuck to the, yeah, the all the states that border Canada. And then I actually went into Canada uh, towards the tail end of the trip, which wasn't the best choice, but because uh, it was on the Trans-Canadian Highway. Lots of trucks and lots of bugs, I remember. <laughs> what was your total number of miles that you, you think you rode? Was it like in excess of 6,000 miles? or No, I think it was... Like twenty two thousand four hundred something. Like oh wow, it was a, it was a pretty direct route then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because like from here to Ohio, where I grew up, is it's like nineteen hundred miles. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that sounds about right. It was like twenty four. It took me five weeks. I mean, I was twenty eight. So I mean, I was 
some days I was clipping off a hundred miles. One day I had a tailwind. I did 200 miles in one day. Wow. Yeah. That's hard to do on a motorcycle, let alone a motor, a bicycle. Yeah. And a, a loaded bike, you know, I mean, heavy. Now I'm actually going to do a five-day bicycle trip on this trip I have coming up, five-day tour in North Dakota, because I still write for the magazine. Yeah, you're, you know, the gear is so much lighter now. It's like half probably what I carried back then. All right, well, I guess we'll get into the meat of the actual <laughs> creative part of it. Did hard work on a farm offer you creative solutions to challenges or problems? And if so, can you share a memorable experience that speaks to this? As far as for the photography goes? or You'd mentioned when I asked about creativity, yeah. you had mentioned that, that you started out doing a lot of hard work, but then you kind of migrated you know, into finding things on your own. And I'm just wondering how, you know, did you have, did you have a a creative life before you found photography on the farm? Was there anything? Uh, Yeah. You know, back, back then, uh, it was more practical. You know, I think a few things carried through on the farm, you know, a lot of things were weather dependent. They still, they are with photography. So I kind of learned to roll with the, uh, what nature provided each day. So I still do that now. And I mean, that's probably been one of the keys to my success was just that I, you know, even when I grew up on a farm, I always had chores to do before I went to school. So I was always up early. I always appreciated being out at dawn when it was quiet. There wasn't much wind because we lived in a windy place. And just always felt serene. And I also hunted and trapped and all that. So I was always around animals and and out in the environment. But, you know, when things went got bad or, uh, you know, like say the weather when you're farming, you had there was other things you could do to keep busy and be productive. Same thing with photography. You know, if the weather doesn't work out right, then... I can spend my time writing or researching for the next trip. There's always uh, things you can do. And I I work around the weather quite a bit to get the best images. I still get up early and stay out late. Or if it's rainy, you know, I mean, then you can go into the forest and, and shoot great forest shots or landscapes with waterfalls, flowers. So I really learned how to work in all kinds of different situations. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what was the instigating factor for you to move beyond your what you called your hard scrabble farming life to a more creative or artistic one? I basically got told uh, I was born in the wrong generation to keep farming. Because <laughs> I really, that you know, when I was growing up, I really thought that was it. I was learning the craft and I had... My own little operation, I had livestock and had my own little business. I was in FFA in, in high school and, and did quite well with that. Uh, but yeah, you know, when I was 18, 19, my grandparents, both of my grandparents were farmers and they both said the air is over, family farms. It's getting bought up by bigger and bigger farms. You won't be able to make it. And so then I was kind of drifting for a while, you know, I mean, I think I mentioned in your pre-interview, I, I found some drugs that worked pretty well and <laughs> kind of changed. It really, I got to say, it really changed my outlook. I kind of went from a redneck to more of an artist 
during that era, just experimenting with certain things. And uh, music was always very important to me. And I ended up going to school. There was a school in Ohio for sound engineering. And I really liked it. Uh, when I got out of that, uh, there was another school in Hollywood. So I was 20, just about 21. I thought I got to do something. You know, I, I kind of had this awakening there where I just wanted to learn things and uh, do something with my life. So packed up the Camaro. <laughs> And drove and ended up, uh, yeah, I was, I lived in Hollywood, California for like two and a half years. Um, went to school at a, at a building where Van Halen was also, it was their office. So I, I got to see them in and out of the parking lot quite a few times and uh, just met a whole new, you know, group of people. I grew up with all these Farmers, I really had not hardly met any minorities or people from other ethnic or uh, religious backgrounds. And so it was a great experience. Uh, really changed my life, you know. Wow. That sounds really cool. And it, it's terrible to rub elbows with Van Halen, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, what, a, what a great experience. My, my instructor, I remember, was uh, this French guy who was the sound man for Fogad. I don't know if you remember them. They were a pretty big band back then. And, uh, and yeah, yeah. And then all my friends were musicians out there and it, a lot of them from the Midwest as well. And uh, yeah, we, we, had a, we had a fun time out there. I worked at a few clubs and uh, had some crazy experiences. But uh, yeah, you know, got to run around, go to the coast, the desert and, it was a, it was a pretty exciting time in life. We'll learn about how forward-thinking Chuck's grandparents were and how this ultimately shaped his life after the break. Are you an artistic person? Are you inspired by new ways of looking at the world around you? I'd love to have you as a guest of the show here at Inspiris Audio Magazine. You know where to find me at the contact page of the show's website, inspiris-podcast.com. Welcome back to Inspiris Audio Magazine. I, I want to just briefly just kind of comment on your grandparents, how they saw the writing on the wall. I mean, look what we're going through right now with, you know, large corporate farms. And, you know, we, we, a lot of people don't understand where their food comes from and it's coming from a large factory farm and not these mom and pop, you know, around the corner farms. That's why, you know, community supported agriculture is so important. In my opinion, we, we need to get back to some of that, I think, but I'm hearing, I'm hearing that farmland is just getting bought up left and right you know mm -hmm. it's just going away it is uh, the prices have skyrocketed so it's really tough for younger farmers to get started nowadays that want to do it the right way more organically you know i, I wish i was a better writer i'm i'm a okay travel writer but if i was a really good writer i mean i grew up in this whole era of like all the farm farmers i grew up in ohio with were probably like second generation immigrants from Germany. And they took this swampland and drained it and turned it into this great agricultural region. It's funny, you know, talking to my grandparents, you know, they were in the 1920s and 30s or when they were starting farming. And, you know, they were like, well, everything was organic farming back then. There was no fertilizers, no chemicals, none of that stuff. 
And I still remember, you know, my grandparents saying how much better meat tasted for once. Food tasted way better because it was grown slower and without all these additives. But by the 60s, you know, I mean, uh, when I was a kid, you could just, you know, all the magazines, everybody was like, get bigger, use more chemicals, get more efficient. That was the mantra. And I could see it happening even when I was a teenager where some of the guys were just buying up farmland and the slowly but surely the uh, smaller little family farm guy had 80 acres or 120 or whatever were disappearing. And, you know, I mean, where you needed 20 people to do all the labor, suddenly you only needed four. (laughs) And now you probably only need one, you know. When we did harvest or hay baling, you know, like we would hire half the neighborhood. They, the kids and the neighbor, everybody came and my grandparents would make uh, the meals and we'd eat and, uh, you know, all together. It was just, a, it was a great bonding. And if anybody ever got sick, like any of the farmers, all the other families would pitch in and help with the harvest and things like that. So yeah, it was a a great sense of community. Uh, it it saddens me uh, as somebody who was in agriculture growing up to see what's happened, you know, especially with like livestock and stuff. Uh, you know, a few people do it the right way, but the bulk of it is, uh, is you know, factory farming. And it's, it's it, I, I don't think it does humanity too well, but I don't know, maybe again, there's so many of us now that it's necessary. It's it's really uh yeah. It's definitely a mixed bag, isn't it? it? It's a mixed bag. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's. Uh, I don't want it to be a completely somber moment, but I totally agree with you that that things have have changed. Like when I was a kid, you know, and people are lamenting this too. You know, you used to be able to run around until eight, nine, ten o'clock at night until dark until your parents said, "Okay, time to come home." Or my dad, my dad would whistle. We could hear his whistle for a mile a mile away, and we'd come running basically. And those days are also done. Like now, we have you know the telephone, computer generation, and the instant gratification, and we don't have people who are, who are as patient as we used to be. You know, in my opinion, so. I, I yeah, I think so too. And uh, I mean, being a photographer, you have to have a lot of patience. <laughs> so it's probably I, I'm sure younger people. Some of them are that are in this field are also have that quality, but yeah, you have to be, you have to really stick with it and uh, wait for the wait for the right moment, you know, to, just to push the shutter. Well, I also think that well, like I'm a, I would consider myself an amateur photographer, you know, like I'm very familiar with this idea that you know, like having an SLR camera, you're you're controlling how much light hits hits your sensor or, or the the paper, mm-hmm. whatever the the film. And nowadays, people are using their cell phones, which is awesome, you know, to have a basic photography. And just but just because you have a large number of pixels resolution doesn't mean that you you're controlling every you know like you can with an SLR camera, like your professional gear. And right. And so I I find that there's this like disconnect I think between like what you do. And what I had had aspired to do, you know, this very artistic black and white photography with the lighting is perfect and contrast is good and golden hour is high and, you know, all those kinds of things. And people pull out their phone and just take take a snap and 
you know, it just, I don't know. I, I think it still matters though. I mean, it just depends what your, your output is with images, you know, like if you only take pictures to put them on Instagram or Facebook, the quality really doesn't need to be. Yeah, that's true. High. I mean, cause you're not viewing it very large. Um, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum yet. I'm like, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll take snap snapshots with my phone as well, but just for personal use, but for professional use, uh, you know, I, I, every time I come out with a new Canon camera, I, I usually pick up the, and it's just amazing the stuff you can do now. Uh, I'm producing images I never thought I could take when I was started off. You know, I mean, there were so many limitations with film and even early digital, but things are getting better. So I guess my whole gig is the same. You know, I grew up or started my career just trying to capture unique images in the best quality and the best light that I could. So that's always the challenge. And I keep, I guess it's like a game for me. I mean, it's very hard to go out on, say, a shoot for two weeks. If you get one killer evening or morning of light, you're pretty lucky sometimes, you know. And so that's still the draw. And, uh, and now that I have better equipment, I just can take advantage of it to create what I'm seeing. You know, it's, it's much easier with the equipment now to reproduce what your eye sees because the eye is uh, like a thousand times more resolution than your camera, even now. I mean, it's getting a little closer. You never saw pictures of Northern Lights like 20 years ago or Milky Way shots. And now, I mean, it's, it's fairly common because it's the, the equipment is so good uh you you can you know add that to your repertoire as well when you look through your viewfinder after you've taken a shot do you know that you've taken a killer shot like you just said yeah most of t- most of the time i do yeah uh, you know when the action's really going and you only have a couple minutes to capture it i don't really look at my back at my camera and, and review <laughs> like oh yeah you know i just keep shooting cuz i know I have a pretty good idea from all the experience that I have that uh, I'm on to something and I'll keep shooting. But yeah, like as soon as it kind of mellows out or the light disappears, then I look and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's still as thrilling as, you know, when I was with film, you had no idea. You thought you'd got it right. You shot you came home, you dropped off the film. Three days later, you'd go pick it up and stand in front of the light box, you know. It was always kind of like Christmas, like, eh. oh, yeah. You know, I was like, oh, I can't wait to find which one, which box was it that the really good shots are on, you know. But uh, now, like you said, it's kind of instant gratification, you know, right away. But that that's also good because it's a it kind of leads you on, like, am I doing something right or wrong? And it's really helpful when I teach, when I have groups of people with me. And, it, you know, you can show them right away, like, this is working or this isn't working. Yeah. So what kind of photography do you typically shoot? Do you do landscapes or animals or what is your preference? 
I guess most people know me through my landscape work, but I shoot everything. I mean, I don't know if I'm ADH or what. I mean, like I always have. I've shot. I I, I did a ton of sports stuff early in my career, and I still do some. People doing skiing, paddling, bicycling, hiking, all that. So I like to include people in my photos. But you know, I did a whole book on coffee table book on San Francisco. So that was quite a change from shooting landscapes. Same principles apply, you know, aperture and lighting and all that. But it was just such a different genre. And that was really fun. And, you know, I still I do birds and wildlife more for fun and challenge. And just, you know, anything I see really that it, it gets me excited uh, I'll go out and shoot at barns, you know, I still do have ties to my agriculture roots, uh, still shoot uh, some ag stuff. And so, yeah, I, I would say I'm just all, I have probably no more diversity in my portfolio than any photographer around. Yeah. Do you do much post-processing or do you shoot your photos so that you don't have to do so much, maybe levels and the like? Yeah, I mean, uh, and I tell my students this a lot, the better you shoot it in the field, the less work there is to do uh, on the computer. You know, that being said, I love working on my photos on the computer because, you know, again, I grew up where you didn't have any control. You you had the film and even when you had prints made, you know, it's like uh, you sent the slide off and hope they could interpret it. But now you have all the control to make it look exactly like you want. So you really have like a photo lab in your computer. I really enjoy doing that because, you know, there's some things you still have to, there's still some techniques that you can't just take one shot. Sometimes you have to take multiple shots, uh, different exposures and blend them together to give you more dynamic range. uh, So it looks more like your eye saw it. And I'm doing things like focus stacking, where I can zoom in with a longer lens, focus on the nearest point. The camera zips through everything and takes shots instantly to the farthest back thing in focus. And then in Photoshop, I put them all together. Everything's tack sharp. I mean, just there's a lot of... That's a lot of layers, though. A lot of layers, yeah. But uh, these, you know... These computers nowadays can handle it. That's very true. And I did, and I did a lot of video and time lapse for a while too. Uh, that, w- but I got to the point where I was like trying to do three or four things at the same time, and I was like, "This is being counterproductive," you know. I was like, oh, "I should do a time lapse and, and like I've got three tripods set up." But uh, I, I like to add them into my. Uh, I do a show, a couple few shows every year, and. I find that I, if I have a little time lapse or video in between the stills, it keeps people's interest up, you know. Yeah. And I'm gonna fall asleep in a seat. <laughs> well, don't don't you get into drone work then, because that'll be a fourth thing that you want to do at the same time. No, I, that, that's exactly why I never did. Uh, <laughs> I'm always afraid I'd fly it into a some place I shouldn't be flying it to, but. There's a there's still times that I'm like, oh man, I wish I had, I had a drone, but uh, 
I don't know. There's enough other people doing that. I'm just gonna stick with what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I have a drone, but I don't. I don't use it very often. Mm-hmm. I want to, but it, it, I've got so many other like this podcast. I just I want to enjoy learning everything about doing the podcast and making myself better. You know, and I feel that that this particular medium is ripe with opportunity. You know, there's sound is the next frontier. We've had sound for a while. You know, people are done have done different things, but now with the advent of cheaper, you know, like you said, with the cameras, you know, you have more technology available for fewer dollars. So, all right. Well, what did you find when you went around your last next bend in terms of seeing things in a new light? You know, I I guess it's a lot of it's just the unexpected. When I'm out on the road and uh, something just comes to me. I I think that's, you know, I'm sure... Everybody has a gift in life, and I think mine is my my vision. I can see things that other people don't see, and I see it instantly. So, like, I could look at a a scene somewhere and know right away, oh, that's 80 millimeters. <laughs> I need to zoom in and compress it and and look a certain way. That's the most fulfilling too. Like when I, a lot of times I just wing it and, uh, and, uh, I come across something and I'm like, oh, this will work. Or I know to come back when the conditions are better, you know, see something. But, uh, like the creativeness often just comes when you look at something closely. Like I think that's the one thing I like about photography and photographers. You notice a lot of the little things that other people would just walk by uh, in a scene. So a lot of times I'll start, I'll shoot like a wide angle landscape of some cool place. But then as I'm shooting it, I'm always kind of just looking around, you know, and I, I see something and then I'm like, oh, I need a longer lens. And that that is that rock <laughs> with the colors in it and that you know, all the patterns in it really appeal and it's more artistic. Those are my favorite shots, like my more artistic stuff that I zoom in, usually with a longer lens. And that's how the process usually works for me. I start off wider and and I just start compressing more and more and like seeing the little details and things. We'll find out after the break if Chuck appreciates other historical photographers please consider subscribing to Inspirus Audio Magazine. Not only will you earn my great appreciation, but as a thank you, you'll receive access to content not found in the episodes. You'll also receive advanced notifications that a new episode will be released. You can subscribe at Inspirus Audio Magazine's website, inspirus-podcast.com. Do you think you and Ansel Adams would have gotten along pretty well? Because it seems to me like you're, the way he, he planned his shots, you know, he could see in his mind ahead of time and he waited until the right conditions were set up, you know, like a set Yosemite or whatever. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we would I'm sure we would have been buddies. That's been the cool thing, you know. I mean, like a lot of these guys that I've been in my contemporaries, we hardly ever meet. Like for years when things were a little different, like there were magazines, and that was a big deal to be published in big time magazines. You see the same names and same names, you know, these pros. And I've been fortunate enough to meet a few and uh, some actually really good photographers here in Montana as well. 
and we've become good friends. And because uh, yeah, we speak the same language, and we all got that kind of love of the lifestyle. And uh, yeah, I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Uh, there's still, it's funny. There's still guys out there that I still see published. I've never met though. You'd think you'd run across them sometime, somewhere, but <laughs> the big country. Yeah. That's true. If Noah Webster came to you asking you how to define creativity, what would you tell him? Have an open mind. Just don't limit yourself to the possibilities and look cl- just take a second look at things. Take, you know, just just observe your environment and be a part of it. It's one thing and I, I hate to I want to harp on like a lot of times they see these people with cell phones. They go to this beautiful place. They take a selfie, snapshot, and they're gone. And I'm like, did you even experience this place? Uh, you know, I think the best time, the, for me, I get my best photos when I go to a place and don't take photos right away. I just kind of soak it all in or go for a hike and get to know the place a little better. And uh, then you start you open up your mind like, oh, and the light gets good. This is going to look cool. And that that really, that's a good place to be creative, you know, just by being in the moment. I have to agree with you. I, I used to take pictures and pictures and pictures with my cell phone, especially, well, you're aware that Jillian and I went traveling around the United States and took lots of pictures with, with my cell phone. And that's fine. I enjoy doing that. However, there are some times when I just... I didn't even pull my phone out. It's it, the moment is too real, too too waiting to be just experienced, you know. And I don't need to be, you know, pulling up my phone, yeah, basically, and ruining the ruining that experience, basically. That's a good point. Yeah, you know, I've, I've become a lot more secure in my career uh, since I've been doing this for twenty five years. Oh, man, when I used to miss shots, you know, or didn't have my camera and there was some great light, I would be just so distraught because I think I was more insecure about my career or something. But now that I've, you know, had a good established career for a long time, uh, I I might see a rainbow over something and just like, I'm just going to keep it up and upstairs here and lock that in. Uh, um, I'm just grateful I'm witnessing it. You know, I just don't have that, I guess, as much pressure. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best way to take a picture of a rainbow, by the way? I've tried and they're always pale in comparison. Well, a polarizing filter, you know, we still use a lot of filters with cameras. Nowadays, not so much, but that one actually, if you rotate it correctly, will bring out the colors even more. And underexpose it slightly, you know. Yeah, there's those. I think those those are the main two tricks. Okay, I'll have to try that. Yeah, you can also turn your polarizer in a, the wrong way, and it disappears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah, there are many kinds of photography. What do you enjoy about creating your images? Just that it's my, it's they're mine. <laughs> And my own stamp on it, you know, I mean, I have my own style, I think. And uh, just over the years, a lot of people look at a shot of mine, it's published somewhere and they say, I knew right away that was your shot, you know. So I think that's pretty gratifying that, uh, yeah, I, I do have my own kind of style, mostly by using light 
you know, it's all about light, man. I mean, that, that's that's the main thing. Good light uh, is still is a very intoxicating element to keep me inspired to go back out. Do you ascribe to the idea that you're painting with light, essentially? Yeah, I, I would. I would. Yeah, it's amazing. Like what five or ten minutes will do. You know, I mean, like there's a very short window where everything looks great. And, you know, I just took a shot two days ago. There's this kind of iconic barn south of where we live here with this dramatic mountain range behind it. And yeah, you know, I was sitting there and it was a big cloud and I had to wait like 20 minutes for the right before the end of the day. And I knew when that sun dropped below the cloud, it was going to paint that barn in this warm bathing, you know, just bathed it in this warm light. And there's just no, you can't duplicate that. I mean. I can almost see that image in my head. I love that. I love that golden hour. I love that, mm-hmm. that reddish yellow, yeah. orange light in the afternoon. Oh yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. And you know, I mean like storms or clouds are the best too. I mean, like I just went to Oregon for uh, this last trip. And I never saw a cloud for like over a week. <laughs> that was that's like the death knell for landscape photographers. But I, you know, I shot the first 30 minutes or last 30 minutes. I did nighttime photography because, well, there's no clouds. There's a lot of stars. So, you know, I was able to work around that situation. And I got ended up with a lot of really great shots. Nice. Yeah, we've had some good weather out here recently. It's pretty dry, though. I'm a little worried about what it's going to be like this summer. You mentioned that you play guitar. What kinds of music do you enjoy playing, and does music feed into your visual art? As you can see, yeah, I got my. I'm sitting in a room here with my guitars. Yeah, I play. I don't know rock or bluesy kind of riffs and. Just kind of, again, I, I, I want to kind of come up with my own sound. I know a few song licks, but I, I always kind of just play around and try to invent. And, and I just got a, for my 60th birthday, I finally got an electric guitar at the amp. So now I have all these boxes, you know, or pedals, and I'm trying to come up with different kinds of sounds every time I play until I'm like, until I get something, I, I, I keep adjusting and dialing it in till I get something kind of unique. But, you know, music's super important to me. It always has been. I don't know. It just, it drives my soul. I think as far as like what, how it ties into my work, uh, it probably puts me in a, the proper mood, you know, like if I'm going to a shoot, uh, listen to some music to get me going or or when I'm reviewing my images or working on them a lot, a lot of times when I come back from a big trip, you know, I might take me three or four solid days in front of the computer. So I play music in the background and I, I think that helps like um, just puts me in a good mood or, or it enhances my mood. You know, uh, music's been very visual to me as well. I mean, we all have like you hear a certain song, it takes you right back to something that happened in your life, right? I, I There's so many songs I can listen to today, and I, 
I'm like, oh man, I'm 17. I knew exactly the spot I was at, who I was with when I was 17, what we were doing. I love that part of it, you know? And I think photos do the same thing for me now that, you know, I, I can look back at stuff I shot 20, 30 years ago and I can look at that picture. Same thing with is the music. I, I feel like I could go right to that place in my mind. It's funny that you say that because in my first episode where I interviewed one, another friend, he said that music was very important in his life. And I, I mentioned the fact that if I, anytime I listen to Genesis, you know, Invisible Touch album, I remember the concert that I went to in 1986, you know, in, in Orlando, Florida. I don't know. It, it changes you. It, it, it gives you, it gives you meaning, you know, to, to your life, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I grew up with kind of a, my father was kind of hard to deal with. He was a, he was a drinker and abusive. And uh, I think, you know, I grew up in the uh, early 70s. So, you know, music to me was a real escape too. Like I could listen to that and get me away from what I was dealing with with him. And, you know, like when punk rock came out, I was like, I needed that aggression. And uh, so, yeah, it just always has followed me. And it's still to this day, I mean, like most of the guys I hang out with, we go to concerts when we can. We, we're we always turning each other on to new music, just like we did in high school. And uh, I still, this still is the joy of my life listening to music. That's awesome. You know, these 14 hour drives. <laughs> I go through a lot of music. Yeah, I bet. I bet. I do. I would too. You mentioned that not a lot of people know you work, you worked in recording and sound engineering. How did you get involved with that? You kind of mentioned a little bit earlier, but what was that inciting factor? What was it that said, okay, music is where I want to be? Well, you know, just like we were just chatting, I mean, love of music. You know, when I was like, well, you can't farm anymore. And I'm going to find something else to do. And uh, I was like, well, maybe I should do something I really like. <laughs> what a concept, you know? I mean, most of my friends ended up working in factories. And uh, I did for a while, too, in Ohio. And, man, you know, I had a real awakening or just one one night on a shift. Uh, you know, all these people were bitching about how they hated their jobs and and they had kids already at home and house payments and car payments and I'm like man I that can't be me and I quit and I remember and then that's when I looked into this music school to learn the recording thing and I'm like oh, I want to do something I really enjoy yeah so that was that was a fun little era you know I did it for like 3 years I ran live sound for some bands and did some studio work and uh, met some cool people. What what uh, caused you to get out of that field? So, yeah, my early 20s, I really kind of got, I don't know if I was homesick, but uh, I just didn't want to live in a big city. And I thought at the time, if I'm going to make it in this business, I have to either live in New York or L.A. And I, I was already living in L.A. And I'm like, I certainly don't want to move to New York as more people. So I think it was that was the biggest thing. I just when I went back to Ohio, I ran sound for some bands my friends had and stuff. But uh, yeah, I just I, I was like, well, I don't know. It just didn't feel like it was going to work out as a as a future if I didn't live in the bigger cities. I really didn't want to live in a big city. Yeah, yeah. 
Of course, now, I mean, you can have a studio anywhere, you know, but back then it was a little tougher. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. You mentioned that you, as a goal, you wanted to be respected for your work. What does that respect look like to you now? And how does this impact how you present your art? Yeah, well, I think anybody wants to be respected for what they, the hard work they put in. And yeah, that was, I think that's important that, you know, I mean, I get a lot of that, you know, people know, respect the quality of my work. I guess it goes back to like farming days, you know, like my grandparents were very respected before their, the work that they did, like their farm fields were immaculate. Like they hoed all their weeds and they kept up their farms very nice and people really respected them. So I think that kind of rubbed off on me uh, that I just, I wanted to be just respected for the hard work that I put in and, and, you know, my commitment to quality. Well, based on the the images that I've seen, you know, having visited you, I, I would have to say that you're you've you've met that goal. I would say. Well, thank you, but yeah, I mean, you can't sit on your laurels if you want to stay in business. But well, that's true. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, my cousin told me about 15 years ago. I, I had a few books out already, you know, and he's like, "I bet you can just sit back and collect the uh, royalty checks from now on." I'm like, uh, "That's not the way it works," <laughs> you know. It's like. You have to keep producing. And quite frankly, I mean, I can't wait to produce new stuff. I mean, that's the that's the fun part. Yeah. Can't wait to see what I'm going to come up with next. I think it's what keeps us going. You know, life is is about just traversing this path, right? It's not about the destination, right? Yeah. It's about what you do along the way, I think. Yeah, exactly. Take it day by day. How did you move beyond the expectation of not having a traditional education and how did you become motivated to learn new things as a result? Probably fear of being nobody. And like I said, I didn't want to end up in a factory. That was a big motivation. And just doing things that I thought would be interesting. I really shifted gears in my early 20s and uh, it clicked, you know, I'm just like, wow, I really wanted to, it's really interested in a lot of things and learning and and once I got a taste of hitting the road and doing some travel and adventure and seeing other people, granted, it was mostly just in the States. That was a real, you know, motivating factor as well. And, you know, now that I'm a little more established, you know, it's just expanded that a little bit. Now I've been going to Europe and seeing a little more of the world. And uh, so, yeah. I think that that's always been kind of the motivation there. Sweet. Next, Chuck will share with us what celebrity inspired him and why. If you like what you hear from Inspiris Audio Magazine, please consider donating coffee over at ko-fi.com forward slash Inspiris underscore audio underscore magazine. I really appreciate your support. What book has inspired you recently? The Anthony Bourdain book was really inspiring. Was it Kim? Kitchen Confidential, yeah. I was, uh, I was, I was really motivated by him more, more by his TV shows. But that was a big inspiration to me. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna f- go forward a little bit because you, I wanted to ask a question. You that that was something that you had talked about in your pre-interview. Yeah, I probably skipped ahead on that, didn't I? Yeah. No, no, no. It's there's no order. There's no order. But I get to, <laughs> I get to, 
I remember I remember that in the questions, yeah. So what what was it about Anthony Bourdain that really, you know, captured your attention? It's funny, the first time I saw his show, I was like, this guy's a jackass. <laughs> like he's arrogant and he's like, who is this guy, you know? And uh then I started I I don't know, I watched a couple more episodes and I'm like, nobody tells a story like this guy. It wasn't just him, it was mostly him because of his uh, personality and his the way you know he just didn't do any bullshit but he was super interested in getting to know the place he was at and then they did a brilliant job with the filming and editing i was like boy nobody nobody comes close to vi- visually telling a story these little cuts you know it'd be these little two second cuts of here and there and I'm like, man, you know, you just feel like you've, you really know the place. And it really inspired me as well to like, man, I go on a vacation. I don't want to go to like some touristy place. I just want to go to the little local dive and meet the real people and eat the real food. And that's, that's the experience I want. And uh, so he really, he was a real inspiration as far as getting me on that track. He had a really good ability to cut through all the the rhetoric and all the the political you know the pc stuff right and he he would tell it like it was he would you know also just be very funny at the same time and very human he was a very human individual you know exactly he kept it real yeah 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 and yeah yeah his death definitely is a loss and i i really enjoy watching his show in fact they're still playing on cnn they're still playing you know his episodes and i watch them when i can I have a few of them still recorded, and yeah, and every once in a while, I'm like, I needed a little dose of Anthony, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll still watch it. <laughs> All right, so moving from books onto music again, what what musician has caught your interest lately, and why? Man, I, you know, it's like for me, it's like flavor of the month. I I really I get onto something, and then next month I'm like into something totally different, I'm more like into like rootsy kind of music at the moment or a band, you know, newer bands that are, yeah, kind of going back to their roots and keeping things like more simple. I like that. So there's been a gal I've been listening to, Lyra Lynn. She's out at Nashville. She's, it's kind of folksy, kind of Joni Mitchell in a way. Her vocals are astounding. She's very fresh and new, and I, I find that I, I can listen to her over and over. There's a band called Caliphone. I think they're out of Chicago. Just kind of, again, some real spacious kind of avant-garde rock with uh, he's played slide guitar a lot on uh, acoustic guitar. Uh, just, yeah, I just enjoy finding more like simple down-to-earth and heartfelt music that's kind of stripped down, you know? I mean, like, I I think I'm, you know, I still like Fleetwood Mac and Journey and all those really slick produced stuff that we listened to growing up. But uh, now I think I I just enjoy the simple, somebody can just play a, a decent guitar and has some good vocals and lyrics, and it doesn't have to be fancy. So you like the minimalist type of movement right now 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, so Camp is another band. I like they're from. I think they're from Ohio. And then Jack White, uh, White. He was in the White Stripes. Uh, Rankin Tours. He's in. He does a lot of stuff that I like. He's very creative and tries all kinds of different genres and stuff. Have you seen his documentary? It's going to get loud. Yes. That that's an amazing documentary. I love the opening scene. I uh, just love that opening scene. Yeah, no, that that was on not too long ago, and I I watched it again, and I'm like, man, that's a lot of talent in one room. <laughs> that's very true. Do you enjoy the Foo Fighters? I do. I've seen them in concert a couple times, and I'm a big fan of Dave Grohl. I think if it was a spokesman for rock and roll, it should be Dave Grohl. <laughs> I mean, He's a good human. Yeah, he's, he's very personable. The reason I brought him and his band up is we watched we watched on HBO when we had HBO the, the Sonic Highways. Oh yeah, um, it was eight episodes, and each song was you know featured in the in the show, and that that to me was is, was storytelling also at its its peak because you know he would interview artists and he would interview people on the street and then he would create a song based on the people that he met. So yeah, wasn't that cool? That was a great. That's the kind of stuff I mean you can you can really pull off after you're more established as an artist. I mean like you can take more chances and it'll either fail spectacularly or or be a, a brilliant success, you know? And it's kind of nice to be to that stage of your career. I think that's where he's at. Seeing as you like music so much, I want to ask you because this has been on my brain for 10, 10 years or more. Why do we get addicted to music, in your opinion? Why is it that we, like, for me, I I can listen to Pink Floyd's The Wall, or I can listen to Dark Side of the Moon over and over and over again, and I know the words, I know the, the lyrics and the melodies and everything like that, but there's, like, I have to hit that button again and again and again, like it's an addiction. So I'm just wondering, what, do you feel that way about music, or what, is it necessary? Yeah. Yes, totally. I think it's been... It's part of our DNA. I mean, there's a part of our brain that that's a really satisfying, sets off some endorphins in your brain, or uh, it's just very satisfying, like uh, eating a good meal or looking at good art. Uh, listening is the same way, and like we talked about earlier, it can put you in a put you in a space or take you back somewhere that no other mediums can't do and yeah so i think it's very pleasing to your brain and you know i mean i don't know it was, it was just a whole attitude right especially guys our age that grew up with this such great era music was so exciting you know i mean let's think about it you know we grew up when rock was new and every week I remember going to the record store after high uh, in high school, I'd have my money saved up so I could buy a new album or cassette because there was always a new band or new music coming out. It was, it was just such a exciting era. I mean, going to all those concerts in the seventies, I was, I still have my scrapbook with my ticket stubs. You know, I went, ah, so ACDC and Ted Nugent for six bucks or, you know, I mean, Sticks or all these bands, you know, and yeah, I mean, I, I just always feel fortunate uh, that we grew up in the era that we did. Very fortunate, actually, before phones. 
I have to agree with you, honestly, because like, well, Jillian loves you know pop music. I find these days that you know we don't we're not going to get another Freddie Mercury anytime soon, or a Prince, or Tom Petty, or you know I miss those people. I miss their musicianship and their poetry. It's poetry as well. It's a story, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I'm just I'm not a vapid person. I'm not shallow. I I really enjoy the storytelling aspect as well as just the the levels the the multiple layers of con- context in in music you know yeah and i mean uh, yeah i'm that'll never leave me sure i'll be i'll be rock if i live to be 90 i'll still be listening to some crunchy guitar somewhere you know <laughs> <laughs> nice okay so you're a photographer adventurer and a writer what makes you excited still to start your day knowing you're going to be creating something? Probably just the the unknown factor. Like you can plan all you want, but you know, especially when you're taking photos, something might come up and you're, you you could go in a completely different direction. Mostly with with me, you know, like uh, we mentioned earlier, the the weather plays a key component to it. But you know, I mean, like. Same thing, you know, with birds and yeah, when I wake up, I'm like, oh, I have sort of a plan. And then, you know, hopefully most of the plan comes together. But I like the fact that I don't know completely. I'm kind of just, it makes it, that, there's where the adventure part comes in. It often takes adventure to find the photos. Like I might have to bike or hike or ski into some place to get to the location. So, you know, I mean, there's, that's, that's also part of the adventure. So you're along for the ride in a lot of ways too. I'm along for the ride. Yeah. I'm just, I just want to be observant and capture what I see. What have you learned recently with the, within the creative realm that gets you energized? I think just having the new tools available with my equipment. Yeah. It's fun now that I, I approach it differently. I'm like, you know, the shoot I did a couple of days ago, I'm like, oh, you know, there's no wind. I can zoom in on these flowers and get the peak, everything in sharp focus just by manipulating my camera to a different setting. Yeah, I, I would say just the advancement in technology, it just enables me to to create better images and, you know, I mean, to be frank, uh, even more artistic stuff at times. I can take, I'm just looking at a shot on the wall that I took of a reflection with a long lens. And yeah, just, you know, the thing that you see in your head when, before you take the picture, now you can actually reproduce that, that you see first. That's exciting. I think it's probably also because, you know, with the computers inside cameras these days, you get a lot faster response time between the time you hit the shutter and the, the aperture actually closing, right? Oh, yeah. So you mentioned that your grandparents had been a really good influence on you. Can you share some advice that you received from them that shaped who you are or what your actions are? Yeah, I mean, they taught me a lot of good morals, you know, you know, don't lie, uh, be honest with people. And I, I saw it time and time again, you know, like we would always have like they would sell eggs or produce from the garden and in the winter to keep busy. One of my grandfathers would make like dog houses 
and sell them to people. And sometimes people would come by and they didn't have enough money. And he'd, he'd just tell them, you know, hey, you know, you could take it and come back and, you know, when you get the rest of the money and pay me. Most of the time they did, you know, and uh, so, and, you know, he was also, you know, they, they, they grew up in a totally different era, you know, depression era and immigrants from Germany, like I mentioned. And I just remember one of his sayings was, you know, bragging on yourself is fooey. You know, it's like, don't get too high on yourself. You know, it's like, stay humble. And I, I thought, yeah, I know that's a, that's a good thing. I, I, I think, it's good to be confident uh, without being totally arrogant, you know, it's a, kind of a fine line. So, you know, and to be frank, they, you know, like I, I mentioned with my father, uh, they saved me from him, basically, because he could be out of control, but they, he would never do anything to harm them because they meant so much to him. They would always kind of be in my corner and uh, they kind of really saved me, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, we could get into that whole thing. That'd be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it would. Yeah, we definitely could do that stuff. For the listener, this is going to seem like it's going to be way out of place, but you asked me to ask you this. So can you tell me the story about your name? That that kind of gets to where we were just mentioning. I don't know how to, if I can keep this down to like two minutes. I mean, I'll try. <laughs> So my dad grew up in West Virginia. He got treated very poorly by his father. Very, you know, wild hillbilly, just, I mean, crazy stories. But he basically bolted when he was like 17 and his sister was already living in Ohio. That's how he ended up in Ohio. He befriended this young man in high school named Charles. And he was my grandparents' only son. I don't know if you're following, but you will in a second. Anyway, so they were like really tight. And right after high school, a bunch of boys from Ohio went up to Canada to go fishing. And my dad was supposed to go. He got hired at a meatpacking plant and couldn't go. So they all went and the boat overturned in the lake. None of them had life jackets, and they all drowned. They were like 19 to 22 years old, and it was, I think, four of them. And so it was pretty devastating to the local area. And so these two people were, you know, my grandparents were obviously beyond heartbroken. Their only son perished at 19 years old. So they took my dad in. And he became basically like their son. And when uh, I came along a year later, of course, they named me Charles. And so I grew up, right? They built him a house right across the road from the farm. I only knew them as my grandparents. And, uh, and just to think what they did after losing their son, took somebody else in. And then treated my sister and I like we were, we were their life. I mean, like we, it worked both ways, you know, like they gave us love and 
uh, a life like this whole farming life. My other grandparents were a couple miles down the road uh, as well, and they were also a great influence. But uh, the ones I lived right across the road from, they gave me a life and taught me my values. And we were, and, you know, and we probably gave them a life, you know, a second chance. And it's quite extraordinary when I think back about it. It's I get emotional even now, you know, I mean, to, to think what they did for us. That's pretty incredible, actually. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I wish I was a, a better writer because that whole area, you know, you can still see all the farms dotted and, and the, you'd look across a quarter mile down the road and there's another farm. and It's totally flat farmland and uh, uh, everybody was kind of in the same boat. But yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, that that event really rocked that little area to the core and uh mm-hmm. and yeah that's how that's how I got my name wow that's a pretty cool story actually i did i could not have anticipated that honestly that yeah yeah, yeah. it's that's why i put it on there i'm like well that'll that'll throw him off a little bit <laughs> <laughs> i like to be pleasantly thrown off that's for sure okay so we're at the end of the major interview part so now i've got four rapid fire questions for you what are you curious about right now Right now, the party I'm going to tonight, and and the uh, my friend, the parties are like Anthony Bourdain parties. You never quite the the food is amazing. So and it's right on a river. So yeah, presently that's where I'm at. Nice, good food is always <laughs> yeah. a good thing. Yeah. What do you miss most about your childhood summer vacations? If you had summer vacations, because I understand as a farmer you probably didn't have a lot of that. We didn't. No, we didn't. We, I think we did one. We went up to Lake Erie, which was on the shore, you know, northern Ohio. And there was an amusement park called Cedar Point, which was very small then. Now it's like Disney World. It's like this huge place. But yeah, my cousins and I went up there. We camped, played baseball, you know. Yeah, those were the best. I still remember those vividly. Uh, there was... Three cousins and my sister and I, so five of us and, and my our moms. Very, very nice. Yeah. If thoughts become things, what did you just create? A guitar. Fender or? Uh... My Paul Reed Smith. <laughs> <laughs> my sunburst Paul Reed Smith, which I love. <laughs> I'll have to ask you to send a video sometime of you playing, that's for sure. Yeah. You're on a train trip across the country and you can only bring three things. What are they? Toothpaste, my camera, and my wife. That's a good list. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so how can people find you or your work? Mostly these days, uh, you know, I'm I'm not big on social media. So my website, chuckhaney.com, has got all the info on it with my classes. And there's links. You can go look at all my images. I've got like portfolio folders of my best work, so you can browse through that. And I am on Facebook and Instagram, but again, I'm I'm kind of minuscule compared to some of these guys. Is there any uh, anything else that you would like to add? Anything that I didn't ask? Any uh, final words from Chuck Haney? Final words. Well, hey, I appreciate uh, a seeing you again. 
And uh, it's been like it's been almost two years. It's exciting that you're doing the branching out and doing this podcast. Like you said, it's kind of a new medium. Uh, it's I'm excited for you. So and I thank you for having I have the opportunity to tell a little bit of my story and interviews are always kind of fun. You know, it's like you got to be you know, you don't have the answers rehearsed, or at least I don't. I just kind of wing it and hope I uh, don't sound like an idiot. Well, yes. And that's one of the reasons that I like to send out a pre interview and kind of change things up a little bit, because I I find that if if like when I was a reporter, if if people knew what the questions were. They would be stoic. They would be, you know, very level. Yeah. My goal is to find the passion. My my goal is to find what I call the golden nuggets, you know? Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you answering those questions for me, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you ever have a need for, you know, to get your video, get, get your video recorded for guitar playing, let me know, and I'll, I'll come all the way over there. It's only nine hours away. So, right. Well, we, we hope you all come to visit us. In, uh, Regardless, yeah, is uh, your lovely wife and my lovely wife would uh, I'm sure have fun hanging out together as well. And uh, yeah, now that this thing's kind of on the flip side, we hope getting back to normal. Yeah, it'd be nice to have some friends over. Yep, very cool. Well, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. See you, Spencer. Take care. Bye now. See ya. Bye. Chuck's portfolio is expansive, and if you want to be awed by his image as I am, then please visit his website, chuckhaney.com. That is C-H-U-C-K-H-A-N-E-Y.com. We spoke about his formative younger years in farming and how industrial farming pushed him out of his homelands in pursuit of his identity. He founded in Whitefish, Montana after honing the many facets of his life. I'm happy to call Chuck a friend. I hope you would too. Thanks for listening. Inspira's audio magazine is produced by Spencer Webster and S.P. Webster Press. Music is provided by Leland Hirschman, and intro narration is provided by Mackenzie Webster. And remember, creativity is in your future.